Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and it is Sunday, the 7th of May in the year 2023. And the federal budget is only a few days away. That's right. On Tuesday night, the 9th of May, we expect Jim Chalmers to hand down the first, what some would say, full budget of the Albanese Labor government. And let me tell you, folks, this episode we will discuss inside and some of the discussions there. We will discuss some of the things that we know about the budget so far because, of course, it's important to preview these things as we have been doing. What we will not be discussing is anything to do with particular pomp and ceremonies that may have occurred all the way over in the North Atlantic in that tiny island nation that once dominated global sea trade. If you want coverage of that, you can pick up any tabloid newspaper from your local news agent. I'm sure they would be glad of the business. But for here, for now, for this podcast, we will be talking about the issues that impact working people in this country, whether they be in a job, looking for a job, unable to work, or retired from the workforce, as we always do. So let's start at the beginning. One of the key things that's been announced that will come out of the budget, or will be in the budget, I should say, is the Energy Transition Authority. Now, personally, some of you will know, this is an area of policy that I was involved in during my time at the ACTU. I think it's such a crucial and important part of getting us to transition to an orderly and positive economic outcome away from fossil fuels into renewables. We cannot have working people bear the cost of the transition. Fundamentally, corporations have made a lot of money out of fossil fuel energy generation. There needs to be a process and a system and an authority to actually help not just the workers, but the communities that they're in as well. We know that in many of the communities where fossil fuel energy generation or high intensity emissions uh, industry exists, those are the best paid jobs in those communities. And the knock-on effects of those jobs are often the small businesses that prop up, that pop up doing uh, catering, doing uh, cafes, doing cleaning, doing gardening services, doing health services, doing age services, educational. The whole community relies on those uh, jobs and industries. So transitioning in an orderly and structured way with good investment so those communities have new and diversified sources of economic development is so important. We know that this can't be left to the market. The market has consistently smashed communities. You only need to look at what has happened with other economic transitions, whether they be around manufacturing, clothing and textiles, uh, and indeed increasingly and urgently in some parts of the country around energy generation to see what happens. Property prices collapse. People get either trapped and can't move. They get mortgages they can't pay. Uh, Jobs disappear. Poverty ensues. It is a vicious cycle. So the announcement of the Energy Transition Authority, it's a tripartite approach, government, business and unions, Fundamentally, a huge step in the right direction for Australia. It will 
look at how a national net zero authority can be legislated. Uh, they're talking uh, about starting work from July 1 uh, and having actually having budget to, to deal with these issues. Budget for the authority is around $23 million, and there'll also be $400 million from the Powering the Regions Fund, which will be administered uh, by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Fantastic achievement, huge amount of credit to the union movement, uh, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, uh, the Electrical Trades Union, uh, the whole union movement has really backed in the need for this approach to how we deal with climate and the transition to improving our economy. And a massive shout out to uh, the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, under the leadership of Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill, who fundamentally fought to put this front and centre for the Labor government to make sure that workers and communities were not left behind in the transition. And a reminder, we always say on this show, you should join your union because this is the sort of thing that being a union member is about. There's no question that in the workplace, being a union member gives you strength and capacity to get better wage outcomes, more secure work, safer workplaces. Those are the things that we almost take for granted. Those are the things that unions are seen to sort of have won in a way. They're only kept because there are so many places where people join their union and deliver those both in their own workplace but across workplaces. Things like the transition authority happen because unions are able to bring together working people from across workplaces, from across sectors, and explain, demonstrate, and campaign to governments of any stripe about what workers need, what communities need. So you can join at australianunions.org.au slash wow. And of course, the, the wins for workers in this budget don't stop there. This week, we also saw the Albanese Labor government commit $11.3 billion to fund a 15% pay rise for aged care workers. Now, Again, unions, the, the Health Services Union, the Australian Nursing and Midwives Federation, uh, the Health Workers Union, uh, the Australian Services Union, the United Workers Union, the ACTU have been campaigning to say, to demonstrate, to make the case that workers in aged care have been underpaid. And we knew before the pandemic this was the case. The pandemic brought it into stark relief, stark focus that in the aged care sector, workers were underpaid. They were often being imported as temporary migrant workers. They were often being exploited. And the conditions in aged care facilities as a result suffered. And as a result of that, our elders suffered. Now, what will this deliver? This will deliver pay increases for 250,000 workers, including nurses, personal care workers, cooks, recreational officers, and home care workers. A registered nurse will receive up to $200 extra a week or $10,000 a year 
as a pay increase. An assistant in nursing, an extra $137 a week. And a personal home care worker will get $141 more a week. It's $11.3 billion over four years. It's money absolutely well invested in my view. And again, delivered through the work of workers standing together in union, making the case, demonstrating the need, and winning the debate. Can't tell you how important that is. At the same time, there's a few other things that have come to light in this budget process. And a shout out here to my former union where I was an organiser for a a solid year of my life at the CPSU, organising Centrelink workers during one of their bargaining periods uh, all the way back uh, in 2000 and uh, 2000 and when did I do that? 2005, I think I did that. Quite a long time ago now. You can tell I'm getting older. But since then, obviously, huge amounts of change in the public sector. And one of the things that has been exposed, and the CPSU has been talking about this for a long time, it's had some coverage in some media outlets. Shout out here to outlets like The Guardian who have tried to highlight the CPSU's point. The Morrison government, and under Morrisonism, there was an artificial cap put on the public sector, basically trying to cap the number of staff that could be employed uh, in the public sector. And as a result of that, what they did, and this is the only reason I have a small laugh about this, is because it's so ridiculous. It's so nonsensical. So instead of employing people in the public sector, what they did was spend nearly $21 billion on a shadow workforce of consultants and contractors to fill gaps that they couldn't fill because they had artificially capped the number of employees in the system. Now, that is an ideological position. It didn't save any money. It cost $21 billion. It's around 57000 full-time equivalent staff that were not employed. We don't know exactly how many consultants that ended up being, but we do know that the global big four consulting firms made record amounts of money from the Commonwealth during the Morrison era. And we have to remember Scott Morrison was a cabinet minister under Abbott. He was a treasurer under Turnbull, and he was prime minister in his own right. The man's influence over the last decade has been not just toxic, but total. And nothing says and describes it better than wasting $21 billion, the equivalent of 54,000, sorry, I stand corrected, 54,000 full-time staff who could have been employed by the Commonwealth. Now, that is more than one in three, one in three staff, 37% of the workforce. That's a huge number of jobs not created, instead turned into temporary insecure contracting. And why did the Morrison government do this? Well, a couple of reasons. All of them are ideological. The first is, of course, it wanted to stop the public sector from being unionised. We know that public sector workers do tend to unionise because they come together, they understand the benefit, and they join their union. 
So it wanted to break the CPSU. It failed to do that. The CPSU remains a very strong union. And if you're in the public sector, either Commonwealth level or state level, you should be a member of the CPSU. You can join at australianunions.org.au slash wow. Of course, the other reason is he wanted to funnel money into the contractor space. Some of these companies are donors. And more broadly, he wanted to create a broader insecurity in the workforce. Well, Ben, how can you say that? What's your evidence for that? Well, my evidence for that is the NDIS and aged care, where we see an increasing use of sham contracting. We know that there is sham contracting platforms that are undermining employment. You know, there is nothing that says new technology has to rely on 19th century or 18th century forms of employment. We know that you can have tech platforms that employ people. What Morrison wanted to do was undermine our commonly held sense of what employment was about, to make it more insecure, to drive down wages. In fact, today on Insiders, the spokesperson for the boss's pamphlet did talk about the crisis in aged care and the need for more staff, and then immediately on the next question, said that we couldn't increase wages because it would be inflationary. This is the narrative they continue to perpetrate and perpetuate amongst the people of this country. It is a nonsense narrative. It is a narrative not based in fact, but based in ideology. Their decision-making has consistently been ideological and flown in the face of reality. And yet here we are, even now, People sit on the couch on Insiders and spout the same nonsense they spouted before. Speaking of Insiders, Patricia Gavallis mentioned on the show uh, after Sean Kelly had been discussing the need for an increase in support payments for the unemployed, that JobSeeker would likely be increased for people uh, under the age of 55. You might remember on a recent episode of The Week on Wednesday, Van and I discussed that there had been a leak from the budget that it would be increased for people over the age of 55. Now, further reporting has appeared in Sky and on uh, 6 News to suggest that that will be uh, $20 a week. Now, I predicted uh, and unfortunately have been proven right that no matter what the increase is, unless it was the full 90% of the aged pension uh, or some greater number, that people online, particularly on Twitter, would be outraged. I want to put this into its proper context because I've just told you that with the funded pay increase for personal home care workers in aged care, they'll get an extra $141 a week. These are some of the lowest paid workers working full-time. Their wage will go up by just over $140 a week. Now, JobSeeker, if the reports are correct, will go up for everyone by $20 a week. This is reports as well, of course, that there will be an energy uh, relief package that will benefit 5.5 million of the lowest income households in the country. Uh, Reports are that that will be hundreds of dollars uh, taken off bills uh, over the course of a year. Of course, we've seen cuts 
to the price of pharmaceuticals. Uh, we've seen uh, discussion about increases to rent assistance as well. When you start to add these things up, these elements of the social safety net, I should also say, of course, there are changes to early childhood education that will make uh, childcare and early childhood education uh, free and accessible for more people. This, again, is a decrease in the cost of living. I continue to say to people, you have to understand the social wage as a whole of government concept. Yes, there is absolutely and must always be a cash component because there are some things which cannot and should not be uh, replaced by anything other than cash, and that is the individual needs the freedom to be able to choose what they buy, to eat, to wear, to engage with society in general, and the level of payment needs to give them some capacity to do that. There is also non-cash components to the social wage. This has been a fundamental tenant of laborism and the Labor Party for almost our entire history. That is to say that there are things that government can do and should do and must do to support people, not just when they are unemployed, not just when they are unable to work, not just when they are blocked from working, but if they are in a low-paid situation. We call this the social wage. Things like social housing, things like uh, affordable housing, rent assistance, things uh, like job placement uh, arrangements, things like energy relief, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, Medicare, universal education. These are all parts of the social wage. Superannuation, the age pension. These things all interact with each other. There is a tendency to take one element of these things and fixate on it wholly and solely. And I understand why. I get it. Money is easy to measure. We like it as a mechanism because it also does increase the amount of options available to you. No question. That's why we have consistently on this show argued for an increase in Job Seeker. We have also consistently said that when we are close to full employment, government must make choices about what it does and how it supports people who are fundamentally doing it toughest in our economy. Cash is not always the best macroeconomic lever to pull down on. Not always. I'm very pleased to see that there will be an increase in job seeker across the board. I'm very pleased to see that there will be changes to job seeker for older workers who are long-term unemployed and are less likely to find work or less likely to be facilitated into work. And I think perhaps one of the tenets that we've discussed before is the need to change the eligibility and accessibility of the disability support pension. I'm not sure that has been mentioned or done as yet either. I should mention that inflation was sort of the key discussion point 
on Insiders today, and Angus Taylor, the shadow uh, shadow treasurer for the Liberals, from the Liberals, uh, basically responded to every question with inflation. He responded to the fact that Stuart Robert, one of the architects of robo-debt, uh, who gave a very just-following-orders kind of response to the robo-debt Royal Commission, is quitting politics uh just before uh, the National Anti-Corruption Commission starts its work, interestingly enough. Not sure the two things are connected. Certainly, his statement doesn't give any suggestion that they are. His statement is very much about spending more time with his family, uh, which I found to be interesting given the tens of thousands of dollars and his internet bill. It didn't seem that he spent much time with his family even when he was home, but there you go. I'm sure they'll enjoy having Stuart at home more often. Now, Angus Taylor is very keen to make sure that inflation is front and centre of people's minds, and of course, it already is front and centre of people's minds. Uh, As we discussed on the recent episode of The Week on Wednesday, Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese are likely to hand down a budget that will see a surplus for the first time in 15 years. Why is a surplus important? Well, a surplus is one of the mechanisms that can be used to reduce inflationary pressures. Certainly when you've got an RBA governor who is so obsessed with monetary policy uh, and the neoliberal framework as Phil Lowe is, that even when the market says there is no need to increase interest rates, he does so anyway, of just a few days before the budget, it reinforces the need for the government to respond. Now, the response could be to go to war with the RBA and create quite a lot of economic carnage. We have to remember that any kind of war, whether it's a shooting war or just a political slash economic war, creates damage. Jim Chalmers doesn't want to damage the economy any further than it already was damaged after 10 years of Morrisonism. And one can understand why when you look at some of the stories we've already talked about. The the fact that they did nothing around energy transition, the fact that they gutted a third of the public service, the fact that they have turned aged care and the NDIS into sham contracting cowboy paradise. These are damages to our economy. Now, having a surplus is not an aim in of itself, but having a surplus does mean that effectively the government is taking some money out of the economy rather than adding it back in. How is it going to do that? Well, it's doing that in some ways by taxation. Petroleum resource rent taxes will go up $2.4 billion over four years. Again, this is one of those issues where I'm sure... People online will be unhappy. It doesn't do as much as some people would like it to do. It probably does more than others would like it to do. Fundamentally, it's $2.4 billion in additional tax revenue. Would I like it to be $24 billion in additional tax revenue? Of course I would. But you can see the way Chalmers is approaching this budget process. And Sean Kelly made the point on Insiders. Labor is setting itself up to have a staged approach to government. And that's what's needed. That's what's needed. We have three-year terms in Australia at a Commonwealth level. That's not a long time, particularly given when the last six months of those terms, an election could be called really at any time. And there's also a double dissolution trigger as well that can be created. 
So in fact, you could have two-year terms. And we saw that during the uh, Turnbull government, a double dissolution trigger used uh, for uh, the election in 2016. These are complex matters around politics and economics. But the key thing to remember here is that what Chalmers and Albanese are trying to do is establish a long-term Labor government that makes long-term reforms so that working people, whether they're in a job, looking for a job, unable to work or retired from work, have a government that is on their side and have systems and processes in place that can't be easily dismantled. Systems like Medicare, that needs a lot of repair work done to it. Systems like superannuation, there are reforms happening there around how high balance accounts have been rorting the tax system. Systems like the NDIS, we've all heard Bill Shorten talk about the need for reform to get the cowboys, the sham contractors, and the dodgy foreign private equity out of the system. We've heard about aged care and the need for reform there, particularly around workers' rights and the delivery of quality services. And of course, childcare, early education, and more broadly, primary and secondary education as well. People, I think, sometimes in this country forget that the promise of fully funded education for all people based on need in this country has not yet been delivered. There was an interesting ceremony today, uh, not today, this week in New South Wales, where the Teachers Federation, Prue Carr, the New South Wales Education Minister, and Jason Clare, the Commonwealth Education Minister, agreed to put schools in New South Wales on a pathway to being fully needs-based funded. It is a huge step in the right direction. We need to see some money put towards that. In the scheme of things, it's actually not a lot of money, around $6 billion or so. But in the context of setting up long-term Labor governments, we know there are pressures in the other direction as well. Labor wants to do more on housing at a federal level being blocked by the Greens, at a local government level being blocked by the Greens. Blocked in terms of the Greens don't like the financing mechanism at a federal level, blocked locally because they don't like higher density living. On the other side of the coin, you've got the Pharmacy Guild opposing uh, improvements to the PBS, which decrease the cost of pharmaceuticals and decrease the pressure on GPs and the Medicare system by allowing people to collect more than one month's worth of medication at a time. There are pressures from all sides when it comes to a reforming Labor government. So to make reform and to make it stick, you've got to do it a piece at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. That's fundamentally what this budget will do. It will start to eat the elephant. It will take a bite over here on aged care by delivering improved wages. It will take a bite over here on the energy transition by delivering an energy transition authority. It will take a bite on improving the public service by reducing the reliance on contractors and bringing on more direct employees. We've already heard announcements about that for the National Disability Insurance Agency as one example. It will take a bite 
out of the power of the pharmacy guild and reduce cost of medications. It will take a bite out of the power of the oil and gas companies by increasing taxes through the petroleum resource rent tax. There is lots of little bites that will add up to a much bigger picture. And so when Angus Taylor goes on Insiders and his only answer to every question is, well, we have to stop inflation, what he fails to articulate, because I don't think he's able to, is how. And in fact, David Spears asked him, how would he stop inflation? And his answer was, well, I'd be committed to stopping it. Well, Angus Taylor was in government for 10 years. Morrisonism ruled the land. And over the course of those 10 years, they didn't deliver one budget surplus to bring down pressure on interest rates. They didn't at any stage, they didn't at any stage deal with any of those systemic problems that have reduced wages, that put pressure on household budgets, and that made employment less secure and more unstable. In fact, some of the statistics around women's participation were among the worst in the developed world. Unemployment was higher than it is under labour, and wage growth was worse. So when he says he was committed or would be committed, quite frankly, I don't think Angus Taylor knows what he's talking about. I don't think he's got the capacity to govern this country. And that insider's interview was, in my view, one of the worst I've seen in my many years of following Australian politics. Look, the budget will be on Tuesday night. We will do a special edition of the week on Wednesday. On Wednesday, Van and I will talk about the budget. There's a lot in there for a lot of people. And, you know, I often say, you know it's good policy when it makes improvements in real people's lives and yet people who advocate against those changes and for greater changes are both unhappy because it means you're making progress. And quite frankly, that's what I expect to see on Tuesday night. Progress. Not perfection, but progress. So until then, as hard as this may be, please be kind to yourself and to each other.